You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Hey, if you're uh, new with us, this is your first time here. My name is Joe, one of the leaders here, and uh, I'm excited to dive into the scriptures with you here in just a few minutes. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. So if you've got a Bible, just uh, turn there. There might be some in the back of the pews in front of you as well if you don't have one. Uh, Go ahead and grab one of those and turn to Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. We're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. We've been in the Gospel of Luke now for well over a year and have kind of planned to spend just a a few years camping out here. And and one of the reasons for that is is that we believe in, uh, in biblical theology, meaning we believe that the Bible should be what drives our view and our understanding of who God is, how we live, and how we respond and relate to Him. And, uh, and, and, and really in the scriptures and in, in the Bible, we get this picture of the cross of Christ and a father in heaven who loves us so much that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, for us so that by our faith and our trust in him, we can come to him, be made right with him and actually be in relationship with him. And we, we actually believe because of what the scriptures say that uh, we are either in one of two camps. We're either enemies of God or we're children of God. And, and so we... We, uh, we value what the scriptures teach us about our Father in heaven. Uh, there are many ways that we could maybe try to learn or try to arrive at a picture of who God is. Um, well, we believe that the best way is through God's word. We believe that he wrote it. We believe that he, um, that he inspired it through the writing of, of human authors and that it is perfect and that there is nothing wrong with it and that it is truthful and that it, it helps us to learn how to live in a way that would honor God. And so, so because of that, we chose to uh, take this study through the Gospel of Luke now for just a couple of years. Now we're in chapter 12. And part of the value behind that is this, that in, uh, in America, uh, we want our stuff fast and we want it quick. We want to drive through McDonald's. We want our food right now. We want it the way we want it. And we just kind of believe that the scriptures are meant to be more of a slow cooking process where God through his spirit, through the preaching of his word, would just change radically the way that we think, the things that we desire in our hearts, and then the way that we live our lives. And so that just kind of gives you a little bit of a backstory as to why we're still in the Gospel of Luke. You can go and you can find all the past messages from the Gospel of Luke on our website. We hope that you would use that, and that would just be a resource for you and help you as you um, attempt to learn who Jesus is and grow in the message of the Gospel. So <clears throat> without further ado, let's read Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, 1 through 12, sorry. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. 
you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. The one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. If you bow your heads with me, I'd like to pray before we begin to preach. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Luke. Lord, we thank you that, that Luke saw fit to write yet another account of the life and the ministry of your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this specific section of text as we've continued our study. And in this week, Lord, as we begin to just kind of dive in, think, dialogue together, and listen to what your word would say, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would just be present among us, tangibly, Lord, that we would just sense your nearness and your presence to us. And, and Lord, that even if some of us in the room are, are just struggling even to sense your closeness, that we can just rest in the truth that says that you are near. And that where your word is being preached, that your word is actually being spoken. But I pray that our minds would be open and that our hearts would be soft and that our, that our eyes would be open too, that we might not only just see and hear, but sense and feel the truth of your word and that your spirit would use the preaching of your word and this message from Luke to just radically change us and transform us. Lord, we come in today, and I know that many of us come in just feeling weak and needy. And what a great place to be. But I pray that you would use our weakness and our neediness to just see you as awesome and as powerful as you really are. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what it means to be courageous, even in the midst of our weakness and our neediness for you. So, Lord, I pray those things. ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. And everybody said... So what does it mean to be a courageous Christian? This is the question that we're going to kind of wrestle with tonight as we look at this text and as we work our way through it. We're going to talk about five kind of specific things that, uh, that describe or define what it means to be a courageous Christian. But I, I can tell you that for me, that when I studied through and kind of thought my way through this text, and as I wrestled with this question of what it means to be a courageous Christian, I thought of different heroes of the faith, like maybe uh, Daniel and the lion's den, right? If you've ever read some of those stories from the Old Testament, you might think of Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow before uh, the, the idol that the, the, the king had set up for them. Uh, you might think of John the Baptist, who had confronted a friend of his for his sin, and then because of that was beheaded for that. Just some of the people that I think of, I think of Josiah, the eight-year-old king of Israel who brought reformation to the entire nation of Israel because of his commitment to God's word and because of his leadership at such a young age. I think of David and Goliath and the way that David confronted Goliath with a couple of stones and knocked him out and then chopped his head off and then held it up for everybody to see. 
When I think of courageous believers and I think of, uh, of that from a perspective of the scriptures, I think of some of these people in the scriptures. And sometimes when I think of courageous Christians that I see throughout the scriptures or that I hear of maybe around the world who are maybe giving their lives or dying for their faith or living in really difficult situations, I have a tendency to maybe idolize them. And maybe you have some of that same tendency as well, maybe to idolize those people that you think are really courageous in the face of difficulty. And I think we all struggle with this problem. And I think the reality is that, that as we look at other people that we think could possibly be more courageous than we are, we sometimes think that these heroic acts of other people are far better than we could ever accomplish. In other words, we think that we could not be as courageous as what we see in the scriptures. And then sometimes what we do is we have a tendency to kind of create a sense of celebrity Christianity where the actual courageous acts of living out the Christian faith are not meant for us, but are actually meant for somebody else who is more specially endowed with the Spirit of God or understanding or training or learning or comes from a great pedigree or so on and so forth. And so sometimes we can kind of fall into that trap when we begin to think about what it means to live as a courageous Christian. We sometimes subconsciously think that, that sometimes these great heroes of the faith that we see throughout the scriptures, that maybe we see uh, plastered across the TV screens or in our news feed, sometimes maybe we think that, that somehow they are more special than we are. Therefore, for us to live courageously looks different than what we actually see in scripture. But the reality is that <coughs> every courageous Christian that we see throughout scripture is no different than either you or I. Just as needy, just as weak just as much in need of God as the next person. And the reality is this, that we all struggle with the same things. We're all in the same boat. We all struggle with what it means to live out a courageous Christianity. We struggle uh, to courageously confront sin in the midst of our lives. We struggle um, with fearing what people might think of us, what they might say about us, what they might do to us. We struggle to live openly in ways that would bring honor to Christ because we fail sometimes to remember that only he can give us access to the acceptance that we, that we really desire and that we really long for. And, and, and that acceptance can only come through Christ himself. We struggle to remember that. And so then we begin to live in ways where we try to maybe earn that acceptance because of our fear. We struggle to trust sometimes that God will empower us to speak for him in difficult situations and in difficult circumstances. We struggle literally to just live courageously as Christians. And this is the reason that we need this text. Look at verses 1 through 3 again with me. In verses 1 through 3, we learn that men, courageous Christians confront their sin instead of hiding it. They confront their sin instead of hiding it. It's so easy for us to become like consumed with all of the things that we've got to do that we subconsciously begin to hide the things in our lives that, that we know are not honoring towards God. Sometimes we, we get so busy or we become so afraid that someone would know maybe some of the ways that we've been living or the sin that's been in our lives that we begin to stiff arm the voice of the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us and begins to uh, confront us for those things. And so then we, we discontinue living out these patterns of confession and repentance and conviction as we begin to stiff arm the Holy Spirit and what he says to us. 
And Jesus knew that his followers would struggle in their fight against sin's power over them. And, and this is, I think, the reason why in verse 1, Jesus, um, Jesus stops in the midst of everything to say something to his disciples. Luke records it this way. He says that many thousands of people had gathered together, so much so that they were actually trampling each other. The ministry of Jesus was attracting so many people to come around that it was becoming a very busy and dangerous time to even be in the area. There were some people who were just struggling to get to know Jesus and to come close to him and to see him and just be near him because so many crazy, miraculous things were happening. And in the midst of that, so many thousands of people were gathering that some were being trampled. And yet, in the midst of that, Jesus pulls aside with his disciples because he's got this very important thing that he wants to talk to his disciples about. And this is what he says. Notice this. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. We've been preaching and dialoguing and talking about this over the last couple of weeks, what it looks like to be a hypocrite. And I know many of us have been just cut to the core as we've walked through that study and as we've heard God speak through his word. And what Jesus is saying when he says this, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. What he's saying is that we need to be careful of these very small traces of hypocrisy that can actually infect us and inflate us. And leaven is what he references. Leaven is a very small particle. I want you to think about the difference between the granulation of sugar and the granulation of wheat. Okay? Those granulations are very different. One very small and one much larger. And leaven is a lot like flour maybe in comparison to sugar. So small that if you were to pull out one tiny particle of flour, you maybe wouldn't even notice it. And what Jesus is saying is be careful. Be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is the sin of hypocrisy. And the issue with hypocrisy is the fact that it is very small and nearly unrecognizable. And as small as it can be, the deal is this, that it can cause a ton of damage in our lives. It's a small little thing can cause this massive amount of like imploding damage on a massive scale. Jesus knew this. He knew that his followers would struggle with identifying the small roots of hypocrisy within their hearts. And so what he does is he follows up his exhortation in verse 1 with an explanation in verses 2 through 3. And he continues this way. He says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And this point is difficult for us to swallow because the reality is this that Jesus sees everything. Our Father in heaven knows all, He sees all, and He's in control of all things. There is nothing that is hidden from His sight whatsoever. The point that Jesus is making is that when we seek to make war against hypocrisy in our lives, we can actually root out this tiny little virus deep within our hearts by understanding that nothing remains hidden. Nothing can be kept a secret. Everything we have done to sin against God and our neighbor will at some point be revealed in the judgment of God. The sin of hypocrisy is rooted in this false belief 
It's a false belief that there can actually be secrets that are kept from your Father in heaven who loves you so much, who sees all things and knows all things. This is why we say that a courageous Christian confronts their sin instead of hiding it. Maybe in these moments as you think about this, as you think about the reality of nothing in your life being hidden, that everything will be exposed at some points. And even as I preach this, I remember that, that there's a passage in Scripture, and I believe it's in Hebrews, that speaks of the fact that as we come into contact with like God's word and as it speaks, it's like a, it's like a double-edged sword that like cuts deep down inside and it like finds these roots of infection deep within us. And what it does is it lays us bare in front of our Father in heaven. It leads us in a place of accountability to our Father in heaven. The reality is nothing can be hidden from him. And so for a courageous Christian... The thing that we must do is continue to do war and do battle with those hidden things that are in our lives. I think sometimes we try to hide things because we think that something that we might say or something that we might confess or something that we might attempt to repent of might actually shock God somehow. Maybe it'll shock someone next to us and then they'll think differently of us. Maybe Maybe the truth is that in the midst of this study, in the, in the midst of hearing this message, maybe, maybe the Lord would convict you of some places in your heart and in your life where you've been keeping some sins secret. Maybe what God would do in the midst of this message and in the midst of this text is reveal to you moments where you have sinned against him and your neighbor, where, where maybe you have tried to cover it up or to keep it a secret or to hide from it. We all do this, right? We, we struggle to believe the gospel. The gospel reminds us that in Christ it is finished. That in Christ there is no sin that has a hold on us. The debt for our sin has been paid. Our sins have been forgiven. We are holy and accepted in Christ by our Father in heaven. We struggle to believe this, and so sometimes what happens is we wind up playing games. We try to put fig leaves on, again, like Adam and Eve did in Genesis. We tell stories of other people's sins and our accomplishments. We point fingers at other people. We play the victim and pretend like everybody's out to get us and everybody's out to hurt us. We blame others. We make excuses. And in the midst of doing this, we substitute the true gospel, which says that Jesus died for us and that by our faith and our trust in him, we can be completely and radically transformed and changed, that we can be taken from being weak people who are enemies of God to becoming weak people who are children of God, in need of God. This is actually a courageous thing to say. It's to say, I am weak and needy, and my sins would undo me if it weren't for Christ. So sometimes we trade that gospel message in, the one that saves us and sets us free and what we do oftentimes is we trade that for this false gospel message which says that we must work to write the script of our holiness or our perfection. This thing that we cannot earn, create, or possess within our own selves. 
Oftentimes we begin to look to other created things to gain our goodness and we forget Christ. Do you find yourself broken over your sin in these moments as you sit here and as you contemplate this word and as you hear this word preached? Are you broken over the sin that is in your life? There's not one of us that walked into this place or this room that is without sin. And in fact, John, later in his letters, makes a great point that and if any of us says that we are without sin, then we are actually without Christ and we are liars, which then makes us sinful people. Every one of us walks into this room in the same place, sinful and weak and in need of Jesus. And what Jesus actually calls us to do is to drop the masks and drop the game playing and drop the pretending and to come to him open and honest There's no amount of activity in your life. There's no amount of church going, no amount of gospel community attendance or conversation. There's no amount of awesome relationships. There's no amount of study that you can do that will wipe away the stain of sin in your life. We say that in our worship today that Jesus paid it all and yet we live as though we still have something to pay. Jesus paid it all. Therefore, we do not need to live in shame or in fear or in guilt because Christ is the one who has made change, salvation possible for us. And my prayer is this, that we would become people who find our security in the message of the gospel. My prayer is that we would find our security and our courage in the message of Christ himself and in no other thing. And that by doing so, we would be enabled to be a people who are open and honest and transparent and even vulnerable about those things that we thought were hidden when in reality, at some point, and God knows all those things anyways, only Christ can wash them away. And as we begin to move down, as we begin to look at verses four through five, we learn that courageous Christians fear God instead of people. And courageous Christians not only confront their own sin instead of hiding in it and living in it, but they also fear God instead of people. This is such a difficult portion of scripture because we all have these issues in this area, right? This issue of fearing people instead of fearing God. And even the most calloused and non-feelings-centered or oriented person here in the room struggles with what other people think or say or might do because when it comes to fearing people, we become afraid. But the reality is this, that feelings isn't the issue. The issue is this, our desire for self-preservation Jesus doesn't spend any time in these verses addressing the feelings of the people who fear other people. He instead addresses our issues with self-preservation. Look with me in verses 4 and 5. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Jesus confronts the fact that we all seek to preserve ourselves. We all seek to prolong our lives. 
We all seek to protect our reputations or to build our reputations or to make other people think more highly of us or to think differently of us. We want to be seen as heroic, smart, funny, loving, faithful, respectful, or responsible. But as good as all those character traits are, as good as all those things are, we struggle in all those areas. And as we struggle in all those areas, we live in fear of being found out by other people. We live in fear of being found out by other people to be fakes and phonies that sometimes we are. We seek to play the game of the good Christian who puts on the Christian mask, the Christian faith. And when somebody asks me, how are you doing? And we're like, I'm fine. Because deep down inside, we struggle to be open and honest about what the Lord is attempting to do deep down inside of our hearts and lives. We want to keep up appearance or appearance sake because we're afraid of what other people might think or say or do to us. This is why Jesus follows up this diagnosis, this diagnosis of this issue of ours of being afraid of other people. And he follows up the diagnosis with a remedy. It's almost as though he gives us the pill that could make us better, right? You look at this in verse 5. And what he says basically is that we should not fear those who can do harm to us. We should only fear God. We should only fear the one who in verse 5 he says has authority to cast into hell. And the reality is this, that if God has the authority to cast us into hell, if he has that authority, which I know many of us in this room believe, if he really has that kind of authority, then the reality is this, that he also carries the authority to save some from the fires of hell as well. This is the good news. This is the good news of the message of the gospel, that Though we have lived in ways where we've attempted to hide our sin in our lives, though we've attempted to put uh, some sort of fig leaves on, we've tried to make other people think differently or more better of us, we've ran in fear because of what others may think or what they may say. Though we've attempted to do those things, Jesus died on a cross thousands of years ago with your picture in his pocket so that then you and I could fear nobody except for God alone. Man, like my hope is that the Holy Spirit would reveal to some of you in this room, if not all of us gathered here in this space, in this place, in this time, that he would reveal to us the types of games that we play so that others would think better of us. He would reveal the types of the games that we play to keep others acting differently towards us because of our fear of them. And if that's you here in the room, then the great thing for you is that you can like join the crowd of other like people-pleasing, people-fearing people who need Jesus. So at the end of the day, I think all of us struggle in these areas. Look at verses six and seven. As we dive into verses six and seven, we learn that courageous Christians not only confront their own sin and seek to fear God alone rather than people who have no eternal authority over us. But courageous Christians also trust in God's provision instead of our human effort. It's so easy to get all caught up in our efforts to make sure that we have what we need or that we are behaving in a way that is acceptable to the Lord. And then in the midst of all of our striving, 
In the midst of all of our effort, we easily fall into this trap of trusting in our own efforts and our, our own striving, our own work, our own accomplishments instead of trusting in God to complete the work in and through us that he began and only that he can finish. Jesus knows that this temptation to trust in human effort will be present for all of us and present for his followers in this text. And so he reminds us of God's generous attention to detail when he says this in verses 6 through 7. He says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than of many sparrows. In other words, the God of heaven and earth, the one who created all things, so generous with his attention towards us, his attention to detail in our lives, that even a little bird, even a little bird that is, that is worth less than half a penny, if you do the math in this text, even though a bird that is worth less than half a penny isn't forgotten, that he knows all the numbers of the hairs, on our heads. We are far more valuable. It's like if there's one thing that you hear today, hear this. We are far more valuable to our Father in heaven than I think we will ever comprehend. In fact, I think that we'll probably get to spend an entire eternity walking with Jesus on the other side of heaven for those of us who have trusted and believed in him for those of us who have been saved by the message of the gospel, I believe that we'll spend the rest of eternity learning how valuable and how priceless we really are because of the image that our Father in heaven has placed in us. We're far more valuable to our Father than a bunch of little birds. That's what Luke is telling us here. The cross of Christ proves this. When it comes to being courageous Christians, my hope is that we remember that though we are sinners, our Father in heaven found us to be worth the price, worth the price of the life of his son Jesus. God spent far more than half a penny on both you and I. We are valuably priceless. And our Father didn't see it as too costly a price to send his son to win us back from the clutches of Satan, sin, and death. Knowing this, and if you know this and you begin to understand this, is there really anything that you or I could think that God could not provide? If God was so generous as to give his son, whose body was broken, whose blood was spilled, is there anything that he could not provide? For you or for I? Is there anything that we could be anxious about? Is there anything that our efforts could bring to the table that would even come close to paling in comparison with the generosity of our Father in heaven who gave his Son? Is there any reason to believe that our efforts can do anything to gain anything before our Father in heaven who gave everything for us? Our efforts provide nothing of eternal value. This is why this word is so good for us. This word is like the best news ever for sin-weary, self-earning, workaholic, self-righteous, 
self-preserving Christians who are desperately clinging to the cross of Christ every moment of every day. Is that you? Is that you? Are you desperately clinging to the cross of Christ every single day because you understand your helplessness and your hopelessness without him? Because you understand that your efforts bring nothing of value to the table, yet your Father in heaven loved you so much that he poured out everything of infinite value for you. Is that the message that gets you out of bed in the morning? Is that the message that you cling to as you wrestle with that sin that has been hidden in your life for so long? Is that the message that you cling to when you begin to wonder, am I really worth anything? This is the message that we proclaim. That in Christ we have infinite value to our Father in heaven. Our prayer is that we would continue to grow as courageous Christians who kind of get these things and lean into these things and by the power of the message of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit that we would clean to a bloody cross daily for our encouragement and our growth and our transformation and our repentance and all these things that like roll into this big ball of what it looks like to walk as a Christian who is courageous. And look at verses 8 through 10 with me. In verses 8 through 10, we learn that not only do courageous Christians confront their own sin and fear God alone and trust in God's provision, but we also confess Christ instead of denying him. And one of the things that makes me cringe is when I pull up Facebook and I see one of those goofy Facebook posts that says, repost this, otherwise our Father in heaven will deny you. Repost this if you love Jesus, otherwise Jesus will deny you before his Father in heaven. I hate those, t- I hate those things. Anybody else hate those with me? Am I the only one? Because if I'm the only one, I'm going to feel really bad. Okay, good, I'm not the only one. Man, they just, they drive me nuts. They drive me crazy. I think reposting a Facebook post is not necessarily what Jesus had in mind when he said this in verses 8 and 9. This is what he says. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Facebook wasn't entirely exactly what Jesus was addressing in these verses. But I do think this. I do think that Jesus would take issue with the person who posts that and then in the very next moment posts something that's totally blasphemous towards our Savior in heaven. Right? Don't you think? Jesus is simply saying this. He's saying that if we would be courageous Christians, we will live and speak and act in ways that are honoring towards him and loving towards other people. In ways that proclaim him. In ways that draw the attention of people around us to Jesus and not ourselves. The disciples would soon be in this, like this fight for their very lives. If you've ever read the book of Acts or the rest of the New Testament, you see all these stories about what it looks like to walk as a disciple of Jesus. And man, it's hard. 
Like there's no way that you read these stories and get this picture of what we see in, in the West in terms of Western Christianity where we gather like once a week and we hear a message and we sing songs and everything's done on time and then we gather midweek to do some of those same things. Though all these things are good, as you look throughout the scriptures, it's not necessarily the same picture. It's actually a really ugly picture of traumatic things that are happening to people who claim to be followers of Christ. We in the West find it difficult to connect with this instruction sometimes because we don't face persecution that many others in the church around the world and throughout centuries have faced. That doesn't mean that this passage and this principle doesn't somehow apply to us. What it means is that we somehow have to kind of wrestle with it and hear from the voice of the Lord on how it applies so that we might live in such a way that does proclaim his name courageously instead of denying him. Think about it this way. Every one of us struggles to speak and to live and to act in ways that bring honor to our Father in heaven. We all struggle to live in ways that, that would be called holy or God-honoring. We all struggle to live in ways that are different than the culture around us. We struggle with living in a world as aliens and as children of God while the world around us lives completely different. We struggle in our time management. We struggle in our language. We struggle with our decisions. We struggle in our relationships. We struggle with money management. These are all places that we have the opportunity to proclaim Christ courageously. These are all places that we have the opportunity to courageously proclaim Christ and the power of the message of the gospel which we oftentimes claim to have believed in. And as you work your way through these couple of verses, somebody has to be asking, like, what about verse 10? What about verse 10? What about verse 10 where Jesus says this? He says, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What does this mean? And why does it find its way into the middle of this text? This is not a preacher's favorite text. I can tell you that. And I think the simplest answer, though, as we look at that verse is this. We've all taken the name of Jesus in vain. We've all spoken things that are defiant of Christ in outright animosity towards Christ himself. We've all done this. We are all guilty of this one way or the other. And for this, there is forgiveness. For this, there is forgiveness in the message of the gospel. But to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is a different story. Because to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to continuously stiff-arm the voice of the Holy Spirit as he works to draw us to Christ for salvation and forgiveness. In other words, think of it this way. If you're here with us today and you're, you're hearing this message, if you're hearing this today and you've been stiff-arming or making excuses or giving reasons why you won't follow Christ and surrender to his lordship, then what's happening is you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And for this, there is no forgiveness if you continue. And it's a courageous thing to do. 
It's a courageous thing to do when you lay down your life for the one who laid down his life for you. It's a courageous thing to do when you lay down your weapons of blasphemous warfare against our God in heaven. It's a courageous thing to do to surrender to the revelation of who Christ is. The fact that he was very much the first missionary who came from a very clean place called heaven to a very sin-soaked and dirty place called earth. So that by his sacrifice and the giving of his life, he could save you and continue changing you. This is not a message for one time at a camp. This is a message for all of the Christian life so that we may courageously cling to the message and the hope of the gospel and the power of an empty tomb as well. And my prayer is that we would all grow in this way, that we would grow as courageous Christians who confess Christ instead of denying him in front of other people, that we would confess Christ instead of denying him in the, in the small things like managing our time or our homes or our money or extending forgiveness to those who have hurt us or relating to our bosses or our coworkers at work or spending our leisure time or studying God's word or praying or discipling other people. And the reality is that Christ is the point of the gospel. And if we claim to have believed in the message of the gospel, which points us to Christ, then we must be willing to proclaim him. Not just in the way that we live our lives, but in the way that we speak. Not only in our deeds, but also in our words. In that everything that characterizes our lives should point to Jesus. That's what it looks like to live as a courageous Christian. And look at verses 11 through 12 as Jesus begins to conclude his teaching on what it means to be courageous Christians. He's teaching us this, that, that not only do courageous Christians confront their own sin and fear God alone and trust in God's provision and confess Christ as Lord and King, but courageous Christians also trust in the Holy Spirit instead of human ability. And one of the major issues for all of us is that we, we look at these principles that we're learning today. We look at these things, right? We can easily become discouraged by what appears to be a list of do's and don'ts. And it appears as though all these things are like way beyond our ability to do way beyond our accomplishments, way beyond our ability or our capacity to pursue or to give energy or effort to. On the flip side, there's some of us who may be feeling that way, a little weary. Like, how am I going to do all these things and be a courageous Christian? That's some of us in the room. And yet on the flip side, there's others of us in the room who are kind of like ready to go game busters like Rambo and like put our bootstraps on and like start marching forward like Jordan in the front row. <laughs> it was coming. <laughs> flip side is that some of us are like, man, let's get after this. Some of us have got all the energy in the world to just dive after this thing and this like energizes us, right? Or some of us, the list of things to do and the principles scares us and there's others of us that are like, man, I, I, I don't know about this. And there's others of us that are like, let's get after this. Let's do it. Let's jump on it. Let's get this thing done. Jesus knew that we would all struggle in these areas. We would all struggle in these areas of what it looks like to be a, a courageous Christian. 
We would all struggle in this area, especially of just a, a wondering about our ability, thinking whether we would be capable or able of doing it. Others of us would think we're more than capable of doing these things. So Jesus says this. He says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. In other words, courage doesn't look like you pulling yourself up by the bootstraps or mustering up every ounce of ability or energy or capacity. Courage for the Christian actually looks like this. It looks like a deep and reassuring and resting trust in the power of the Holy Spirit who enables us to give an answer for the hope that we have and empowers us to be as witnesses to the ends of the earth. The reality is that if you look at the book of Acts and you look at Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his followers, hey man, go wait in Jerusalem. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you so that you can be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The idea behind being witnesses is that we would be ones whose lives would speak to the power of the message of the cross and the gospel, which points to Christ, but that that empowerment doesn't come from somewhere deep within because we are somehow so good at this or because we were somehow so special that, that God was like, man, I picked that guy because he is like really good at what he does. That's not the message. The message is that God in his infinite generosity, sent his son and then sent his spirit to empower us to live out the message of the gospel for the entire world to see. When people slander you and persecute you and make up lists about you, you can trust in the power of the Holy Spirit rather than your learning or your list making. You can trust the Holy Spirit instead of fearing for your lack of knowledge and need for more study. You can trust the Holy Spirit to lead you instead of being anxious or losing sleep. And you can trust the Holy Spirit instead of spending hours building your defensive speeches about how you're so great. You can trust the Holy Spirit to give you, in the moment, everything that you need to walk in a way that will bring honor and glory to your Father in heaven. You can trust the Holy Spirit to lead you and teach you what you ought to say in the moments of conflict where you're unsure of how to honor him. You can trust in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in human ability. So as we begin to uh, conclude our time together in the scriptures this evening, I want to point you to a quote that I came across as I was studying um, Philip Riken. His comment goes this way, and as I conclude, I'd invite our music team to come forward. Philip Riken comments this way. He says that true spiritual courage comes from freely confessing our sins, fearing God more than we fear other people, trusting the watchful care of the Father, knowing that Jesus will defend us at the final judgment, and depending on the help of the Holy Spirit. In other words, and Christians don't do this list of things to prove that we are courageous. Let me say this again, because I don't want you to miss it. We don't do this list of things to prove that somehow we are courageous. 
Like, here's this list of one through five of things that I must walk out of here and do tonight to actually prove that I am a courageous Christian and therefore somehow get my check mark on the list of all my do good things done so that therefore God will love me more or accept me more. That's not the message you're supposed to hear today. That's not the message I want to preach today. And my prayer and my hope is that the Holy Spirit would speak through these kind of these five things that we've kind of just really begun to scratch the surface on. I mean, honestly, like as I kind of studied my way through this passage and as I prepped some of the notes for it, I honestly felt like some of it was like way up here in the clouds and, and not so much like ground level, just boots on the ground. And how do we roll with this thing of what it looks like to be a courageous Christian? Because, man, when, you, when I lay this big thing out in front of you, it's easy for, you, for some of you to say, like, I want to be courageous. I want the t-shirt the with the big C on it. I want to be like Superman right? What happens is this wells up deep desires for all of us. From the moment that we were born, there's like desires inside of us to be the hero, to be the star of the show, to be the courageous one when everybody else is weak and cowering in the back, right? We all have this deep, like, seated desire to be the one that everybody else looks at. And the reality of this text is, I think, what, especially the way that Riken comes at this is, it's in the doing of these things that we actually become courageous Christians. Does that make sense? Like, it's just in the doing of those things. I mean, when you think about the disciples in the New Testament, when they were drawn into places where they were slandered and accused, like, they didn't know what to say. Like, I can't imagine how fearful that was. When you go back to my introduction, you think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you've got this king who's like, you will bow in front of a statue that looks like me or I will throw you into a furnace. And those dudes had to have been afraid. They chose to fear God alone and not man. Now the crazy thing about their story is they didn't get burned up, right? That didn't happen for every person. There are many people who have become martyrs in those moments. But I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's answer as they're talking to the king. They're like, hey king, we will never bow to this. We will never live the way you want us to. We will not live this way anymore. It could be something we might say. But here's the deal. Our God has the power to save us. But even if he doesn't in this moment, we're still not going to bow. We're trusting in him, King. So you do what you've got to do. If you look at Daniel and the lion's den. You look at all these heroes throughout scripture, right? All these heroes have this one thing in common, that it's in the enacting of these things and in the doing of these things that we actually become more courageous. It's part of like stepping out in faith. It, it takes a ton of faith and trust to just step out and follow Jesus, right? This is a courageous thing to do. The great thing is that all of these things are embodied in participating in communion together. Communion reminds us of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Communion reminds us of our continued need, our continual day by day, moment by moment, second by second, minute by minute need to confess our sins before God and our friends. Communion reminds us of our, our need to fear God alone and fear no one else. Reminds us to trust in God's provision 
and care for us as we survey and observe and look at the generosity of God at the cross of Christ. Remind us that Christ will not deny us before our Father in heaven. Therefore, we are encouraged not to deny Him. It's not that we try to walk our lives in a way that we don't deny Christ so that Jesus doesn't deny us. It's that we live our lives in a way that we do not deny Him because He has not denied us, because He's accepted us. It's the acceptance of our Father in the cross of Christ that gives us the empowerment to not deny Him in our lives. Sometimes we get it backwards. We try to earn that acceptance, right? The reality is that because of our acceptance that we can gain through Christ on the cross, we live in ways that do not deny Him. Communion reminds us that we must trust in the power of the Holy Spirit rather than our own work. Communion reminds us that in Christ we are growing as courageous Christians. The reality is that there are some of you in this room that as we prepare to engage in participating in the taking of communion together as a family, some of you that are here, man, you're not Christians. Checking this out. You're just here, you're in the room, not sure what to believe yet. There's some of you that are in the room and maybe you thought you were Christians because you prayed a funny prayer when you were a kid. Maybe even in these moments, you're just being convicted that, hey, man, maybe I'm not a Christian. So some of you that are here that are not, and we don't want you to engage in something that holds no meaning for you and no value for you. So, so we would just say, like, stay right where you're at as we engage in this. We just do not want to put you on the spot. We love the fact that you're here. And you, you may come forward. You may have questions or you may need someone to pray for you. And there will be a few of us near the front that would be happy to pray with you, answer any questions that you may have. We're here for you for those reasons. But here's the cool thing, like you may be here, and in these moments, you may be hearing this message of the cross. You may be hearing this message of the gospel. You may be hearing that a perfect person named Jesus, who is a 100% human and a 100% God, came from his Father in heaven to give his life freely, freely, and to die brutally so that you could say, Jesus, I'm a mess and I need you. And I need you to save me and make me right before my Father in heaven. And I need you to continue changing me so I can live differently. If that's you, then welcome to the family of God. Welcome to the family of God. There's like a huge party happening in heaven right now. And then we would just invite you and encourage you to engage in this meal with us. Because it's meant to cause us to remember the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message of the cross, whereby we are enabled to become courageous Christians. So let me pray. I invite you guys to stand and invite our communion service to come forward. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the message of the gospel of Luke. Thank you for this message this evening. We just pray, God, that you would just take this message and take this passage. And in my weakness, in my inability to communicate clearly and stumble over my words and say stupid things but I just pray that you would just take what has been preached here this night and use it mightily in the work of people hearing it and Lord that many would come to salvation and trust in you and that from that we would live as courageous Christians who are depending on you 
pray those things, trust you to do it in Jesus' name, everybody said. Hey, we're going to continue in worship here as we close our time together. There's two near the front to serve you the communion. There will also be a couple of us near the front to pray with you for any needs that you might have or just speak with you. Thanks for letting me preach tonight. I love you guys. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.